0: Before we get started, I wanna tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years, as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility, and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kyrouz. In this episode, we're talking with Matthew Johnson Roberson, the CEO and co-founder of Refraction AI, a company that builds and deploys robotic platforms to provide safe and scalable last-mile goods delivery in urban areas.
1: Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Can you start by telling us what Refraction does and a little bit about the origin story of why you founded the company?
1: Yeah. So put really simply, we build uh, last mile delivery robots to help people move things around urban areas. And the sort of origin story is interesting, I guess. I've been working in autonomous vehicles since the early 2000s. So I got started in the DARPA Grand Challenges in 2004 at Carnegie Mellon. And really one of the things that I think has been so amazing about the last you know, 16, 17 years of progress is just how far we've come in autonomous vehicles as a field. And one of the things that made me want to found this company was that I think me and my co-founder, Ram Vasudevan, Who's also a professor up at the University of Michigan, have both been working in this space for a while, but are sort of frustrated to some degree by the fact that we don't have robo taxis picking us up every day and taking us to work. And while there's such amazing work happening in those areas, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think if you talk to anybody that works in full size autonomous vehicles, including us, we'll be the first to tell you that there are still a number of real challenges that will prevent scalability. But people are working on those, which is great. And so I think part of what we wanted to do in founding this company was thinking about what could we do with the technology that has been so well developed to date to get to some level of scale and much more widespread deployment sooner rather than later. And for us, I think what that means is what changes needed to be made to the approach that people were taking to robo taxis that would change or enable us to get to you looking out your window and seeing a robot every day doing something useful on the roads and so that's really how we kind of came to form refraction and then what we've been trying to do for the last um, year and a half is really make that come true which is to build systems that we can deploy and deploy safely um, with the hopes of, of getting to some level of scale where a robot will touch someone's life every day and and that's you know a pretty simple mission with a lot of complicated pieces that need to go into it and so we've been working pretty feverishly to try to make that happen.
0: So the piece of autonomy that you kind of broke off and said, hey, here's a piece that we can do sooner rather than later in a safe way. What does that look like? Why is the urban delivery robot sort of the piece that can move forward now versus the, the bigger robo-taxi projects?
1: you know for us i think it, it comes down to two things one is that there're lots of really smart people already working on other parts of the space and so we think that probably our contributions to those areas wouldn't add much uh, and then secondly we saw this sort of real gap in the market when it came to the size and scale and speed of vehicles and so how i like to think about what we do at refraction is that there are sidewalk robots and that's been a thing that actually has been around for quite a while now so Starting four or five years ago, there have been a number of pretty credible projects that have attempted to build robots that would travel at four or five miles an hour on the sidewalk and do delivery of some form. And so we thought that there's a lot of great work happening there. And then obviously there's a whole host of really, really smart people working on full-size robotaxis. And so what we said is that you know the urban delivery market uh, and, and sort of semi-urban delivery market, so suburbs and that kind of thing, they were missing something, right? That the sidewalk robots were really going too slow to to facilitate delivery beyond campuses or a few city blocks. And then robo-taxis obviously are trying to solve a much more complicated problem where they have to do highways and roads and, and all kinds of things. But we thought the marriage of those two worlds might be something that could work. And so we said, well, what if we build something that's bigger than a sidewalk robot, but smaller than a robo-taxi? And that's That was really the genesis from a technology standpoint of what we've been trying to build from from, um, the Refraction AI product. And so we call it the Rev1. But what it does is it it travels in the road. So it travels in the margin of the road. So that's next to parked cars, next to the curb, in the bike lane. Really the same places that a bicycle would travel. And and our goal has really been to, in, in some way, use the bicycle as a model of speed and mass that we wanted to emulate and try to build a robot that really address that part of the market. And so if you think about a lot of dense urban area delivery, you know, bike messengers are really one of the fastest and most effective way of moving things around cities. And they obviously don't work if you need to go on highways, you need to go much longer distances. But that's really where the taxis come in. And, and we think that that, again, we hope that others are, are going to solve that problem um, sooner rather than later. And so we've been building this middle solution.
0: So tell us uh, a little bit about the Rev one the vehicle, what it looks like, how many wheels, and what the speeds are.
1: Yeah. So we travel typically between 10 and 15 miles an hour. The vehicle comes up to my shoulders, so it's a little shorter than a person. It's about 5 feet tall. And, and then it's about 5 or 6 feet long, 5 um, five and a half feet long. And it's about 32 inches wide, so that's about as wide, a little narrower than a bike lane. So really to get a sense of the volume, if you imagine an adult, on a two-wheeled bicycle riding it, that's sort of the kind of volume that it's occupying in space. Now, one of the big challenges with bicycles is that you obviously, as a human being, when you ride a bike, balance that. And so (laughs) we thought we would take one of the harder problems out of the way uh, early, and so we picked a design that's statically stable. And so what that means is we have three wheels, and so when the vehicle is not moving, it can sit there. So we didn't want to have to constantly be balancing. So we built a three-wheel design, um, two wheels in the front, one in the back. And that one wheel in the back is where all the drive energy comes from. So that's sort of the drivetrain, and we're able to leverage sort of lots of the developments that have happened in, in e-bikes and some of the really, really great, cheap, and very efficient motors that have come out of those developments to drive the vehicle, uh, and then obviously two wheels in the front to be able to you know, turn, steer, but also balance. So if you're familiar with a recumbent tricycle, And particularly the tadpole variety with two wheels in the front, um, one in the back. That's what we're building around. So it it looks like a tadpole trike if you've seen a tadpole trike before. And so that vehicle is about 100, 110 pounds, depending on load. And, And again, traveling between 10 and 15 miles an hour.
0: And who is manufacturing the vehicle for you?
1: So it's a combination. Roush is doing the exteriors for us and helping with some of the frame welding. And then we're doing the electronics integration and obviously software and sensors in-house. So it's been a great partnership. Roush has been um, hugely helpful. They have a wealth of automotive experience and they've been able to bring that to bear in in helping us to get the initial prototypes built. And so yeah, the things you see on the road are Roush has done the exterior on and then we've done the chassis and um, sensors.
0: And are are they the company that built the Google Firefly?
1: I believe they built the Firefly. They have all kinds of other uh, AV clients that they can't tell us about because of obviously confidentiality challenges. But uh, if I remember correctly, I believe they did the Firefly. That's right.
0: Yeah. So your team is doing the sensor suite and the technology layer for autonomous operation in-house?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we're actually building all the electronics that live inside that. Obviously, the sensor packages and then the software packages. So we put together what I'm really proud of is a computing board and electronics package that both handles the low-level safety systems, that's the drive controller, moving the vehicle, turning the wheels, that kind of thing, emergency stopping, and then battery management. And then on top of that, obviously we have a computing Layer and we have both GPUs and then traditional CPUs in there. But again, you know our big drivers are really cost and power. So we have uh, a 120 watt budget for computing and we have a total bomb cost target of $4,000. So that really limits what you're allowed to put in there. And so lots of the fun and exciting stuff that I would love to stick on the vehicle to make the problem easier, we've had to forgo really because I think one of the challenges. With the robo taxi market is even if the technological problem gets solved, you know, there are questions about scalability when it comes to thinking about the cost and also really the availability of some of the stuff that goes into your typical robo taxi. And so every part that I put in this vehicle, we're proud to say, is something that you can get a hundred thousand of if, you know, fingers crossed we ever get to that point. But more importantly, that is something that has a robust supply line that we can easily repair and replace and then most importantly that doesn't drive the cost of the vehicle so high that you know there isn't a business model aside from delivering diamonds (laughs) or something as valuable as that that would enable us to recoup those costs
0: right what in terms of your service can you take us through how it works i guess you're delivering in ann arbor now what Mm -hmm. kinds of deliveries are you doing and how does the process work
1: yeah, so what's been really interesting over the last year is that we've actually learned a lot from our restaurant partners about what they actually want. So I think the last time you and I met, we were offering a service that was the same as DoorDash. So essentially, you would we had an app that would go out to consumers, and then they would place orders through that app, both an app and a website. Those orders would go to the restaurant via tablet that was sitting in the restaurant. And then we would come and pick that order up after the restaurant had made it and fulfill it. One of the really interesting things that COVID-19 has really uncovered was sort of some of the flaws in that existing model. Now, we were never at the size of scale that DoorDash or Grubhub Uber Eats was to really show this. But even in our very small deployment here in Ann Arbor, we were able to hear the exact same things that now post virus are, are things that are much louder in the conversation around how we should do this kind of thing. So we've actually changed a fair bit. And one of the things that has facilitated that is that in talking with both restaurants and grocery stores, because we also pushed into groceries, they said to us, since COVID-19 has hit, we've actually had to spin up our own online ordering systems. And more importantly, they have curbside pickup and takeout, because obviously all of their in-room dining has gone away. And so what that's meant is that restaurants are much savvier now about their e-commerce platforms, and a thing that wasn't a necessity before has become one. And so now that they all have e-commerce platforms, we've realized that we think that the place that we can add the most value is actually not in what we were doing before, but in just doing the deliveries. And so let me walk you through what that means. So the problem or I guess the, the challenge with the DoorDash model or, or what was happening there is that the revenue share for that was 30% typically. So that means restaurants were giving up uh, away as much as 30% of the total bill costs of whatever you were paying the restaurant directly to DoorDash or Grubhub. And if you talk to anybody that owns a restaurant, they can tell you that those margins were very hard to make work before, but are essentially impossible to make work post COVID-19. And so For us, what we realized is that not only was it a cost issue, but that restaurants really felt disconnected from their customers in many ways. So restaurants had built up this loyal following because they make delicious food that everybody loves and they have people that really like them and like ordering from them. And their only option was to tell them to go to DoorDash or Grubhub to place online orders with them. And one of the problems there is that once they would get onto that site, it's not always the case that they would be directed directly back to the restaurant. Depending on the advertising stream, they may end up at a different burger spot as opposed to this one. And so there was a lot of challenges. Secondly, if something went wrong with the order, it it was really difficult for that customer to get in contact with the restaurant and for the restaurant to make it right. If there was food that was cold or the order was late or something was messed up, you know, the restaurant has a really, really deep vested interest in making that right so that they keep that relationship with their customer happy. And through these big third party aggregators, they weren't really able to do that. And so now what we do is we say, look, the thing that you don't want to do or you don't want to be in the business of is hiring a delivery fleet, managing a delivery fleet and incentivizing and keeping drivers on to handle your peak demands. And so what we do is we offer exactly that. We offer a robot fleet that can be tasked to pick up and drop off food for these restaurants. And so the process is super, super simple. The restaurant has a tablet. And from that tablet, they can call a robot and then enter in on that tablet or integrate with their point of sale system where that order is going. And that's it. So the information we take is the phone number of the customer and the address of the customer and the time that the food is supposed to be dropped off. And that is our API or interface point to delivery. And so if you're a restaurant and you have phone orders, you have web orders, you have even DoorDash or Uber Eats orders that you're going to do the fulfillment on and consequently pay less of a revenue share for, we can fulfill those for you. And so as opposed to trying to offer this full stack solution where we do the marketing, we do the advertising, we bring the customer in, we do all of that. We very simply are the fulfillment layer for these restaurants. And so that's what we've been rolling out over the last month. And that's what we're going to try to expand within our go-to-market.
0: So the restaurants, by necessity, all have their own capability online to accept orders and to have a menu and all of that. So instead of you having to provide that customer interface where the order is actually selected and, and placed and paid for, instead you're letting the restaurant do that and then they just contact you simply for the delivery piece.
1: That's exactly right. And the the second bit of that, I guess, is that they don't pay us nearly as much as they would have to pay the others. (laughs) So as opposed to a revenue share model, we've gone to a flat fee. And so that means the restaurant is really in a position to decide what orders make sense and and what the business model is that makes sense for them. And the economics of it are are much simpler. They understand that they're going to pay a flat fee per delivery. And so they can think about what Their dynamics are around minimum order size and volume. But most importantly, all that money goes to the restaurant. The second bit that's probably a little bit less obvious is that robots don't need tips. But one of the big sort of pain points that I don't think I understood before I got into this is that when you tip on DoorDash, that's going to that DoorDash driver, not to the restaurant. And so the back of house staff at the restaurant, all the people making your food, they aren't really seeing that. And so it was really challenging for restaurants because they had to figure out a way of compensating their own staff and it's a very difficult thing to work in a restaurant, particularly during the pandemic. And without the ability for you to pass those tips on, it was really, really hard for them to figure out how to make those economics work. So even better than just not taking a revenue share, any tips that you want to give on the order, those are obviously all going to the restaurant and they can distribute that to their own staff in whatever way um, they were before, just as if you were in the restaurant and you tipped your server.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting how the economics of the whole business uh, really have changed with COVID. It's Mm. become so challenging in a business that already had very low margins. How are you figuring out what your service area is in terms of the geography? How do you think about how long a trip will take or, or should take in order for it to be a service that everybody's happy with?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that if you talk to people in, in the restaurant business is that there's both customer concerns in terms of like what customers' expectations are around delivery time. and then there's also food travel concerns. So doing both food and grocery now, you know there are different dynamics for each of them. So for hot, prepared food, that tends to not last as long <laughs> uh, obviously when you're transporting it. and so the reason why pizza is the dominant delivery food that we get in the U.S. is not just because we like pizza a lot. It's because pizza tends to travel pretty well when it comes to delivery. One of the things that actually has been a huge, I don't want to say motivator, but I guess technological push in, in delivery has always been french fries. So french fries <laughs> are incredibly difficult to get to travel well. Definitely. And so McDonald's has been a huge sort of push in this industry in terms of bringing delivery times down Because they understand probably better than anybody else exactly how well fries travel and how long it takes until fries are no longer good. So anyways, long and short of that is that we aim to have all of our total order to delivery times be under an hour. And what we have right now in our current fleet with our robots is around a 45-minute average, leave the depot, pick up the food, drop it off, round-trip time. And so the way that we kind of back out from there to figure out how wide our delivery zone can be is really the speed of the vehicle. And, and so again, with sort of a 10 to 15 mile an hour top speed, you're looking at average speeds in sort of the eight to nine miles an hour. And so it's, it's sort of backing out from there what restaurants we can take on and then also what customers we can deliver to. So what we've done here in Ann Arbor is we have about a three and a half mile radius delivery zone. And that sort of anchors at the, at the center of one of our hubs. And, and the real plan to expand that in future is not to make the vehicle much different, but really to think about a hub and spoke model where you have vehicle nests where a bunch of vehicles will live and you have those strategically placed around a city such that you can serve different areas of that within that three mile, three and a half mile radius. And so we've been doing that. And as we actually begin to expand further south and north here in Ann Arbor, we're exploring where our second nest is going to be and where we can kind of get the right space to base some of the vehicles for delivery.
0: So how many trips a day can each vehicle make? Like I'm trying to imagine how big a fleet would need to be in order to provide regular service to mm-hmm. you know, a number of restaurants.
1: Yeah, so you know what's really interesting is that this the number of deliveries that different restaurants do varies quite a lot, and I don't think I had any sense of this. So some restaurants can do upwards of 100 deliveries a day, but that is really, really the high end, and those are almost exclusively pizza places, to be honest. <laughs> and, and the biggest pizza places do sort of 100 deliveries a day across a city the size of Ann Arbor. Most restaurants are much smaller than that, so you're in the order of 10 to 15 deliveries a day, but some are closer to 20 to 40. Um, again, it really depends on the on the size of a restaurant, the size of the kitchen, and, and to some degree, really the cuisine, because people order more of some things for delivery than others. So a vehicle right now, we find over a, a seven-hour shift, can do anywhere from, let's say, eight to 10 to 12 deliveries, depending on distance. So we're seeing kind of 12 at the high end, and eight sort of on the lower end, seven to eight on the lower end. And, and so what that means is that you, you can take the number of deliveries that we think we can do in a, in a town of this size and, and divide that by that number to figure out how many vehicles you need. Now, the real challenge for us is, is not demand. It's, it's really vehicle supply. And so what we're hoping to do is to be at – well, our plan is to be at 25 vehicles by the end of this summer. And so we think with that – we'll be able to handle, uh, in fact, a, a fairly good chunk of the delivery in town. So that'll put us really on par, at least in this market, with all of the major players, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber And in fact, we'll probably, if we're able to operate that fleet continuously, seven, eight hours a day, or even over two shifts, we will be probably the largest delivery provider uh, here in town. So that'll give you a sense. This is about 100 120 thousand person town and so we think that's probably a pretty good model for how this would expand so if you imagine that in sort of an area in which you have 100 125 000 people 25 robots feels like pretty close to the right number now again there can be pretty big variations depending on uh, a bunch of other factors economics of the area age of the people there how much online commerce they do so it's not a hard and fast rule but we think that it's pretty extrapolatable. But also we're hoping to learn more as we begin to expand and really test the limits of of what that will look like.
0: And how much of each trip today is generally autonomous versus requiring intervention from your teleoperation folks? You are watching these vehicles and able to control them remotely using teleoperation?
1: Yep, that's right. You know, it really depends on route. And I think if you talk to anybody that Works in the industry, they will highlight that there's some problems that we're really good at with AVs and some that we're really not. So, some routes, you know, it can be as high as 90, 95, even 100% of the route autonomous. And then others, we really we would really struggle if we tried to push the vehicle to not have anyone take over for that entire time. And so some good examples are Ann Arbor is a pretty dense sort of urban area in, in the center core. But as you get out a little bit, it's sort of more single family homes and two lane streets that have either bike lanes or park cars on the right hand side. And those scenarios were quite good. We can actually go for hours between even days in between intervention on scenarios like that. But then there's some dense downtown areas in which you have people jumping off the curb, trucks backing up, four-way stops, left-hand turns, merging, one-way streets to two-way streets, two-way streets to one-way streets, all the kind of stuff that bedevils full-size vehicles. And in those scenarios, we find ourselves intervening quite a bit more. But one of the things that I think has been an important North Star for us is that we're really focused on providing a delivery service. And so what that means is that I don't want to go to the pizza shop and be like, well, you know, you're on a one-way street and it's really hard over here, so sorry, but like our vehicle is going to have to use this additional sensor or think about this algorithm for that, right? The, the, the pizza shop owner does not care and is not super interested in how AVs work, nor the technical details of what we're trying to do. And so one of the things about having the ability to blend both autonomy and teleoperation Is that I think that gives us the ability to deliver what I hope is a really credible product, which I think has been one of the big things that's been missing from the AV industry, right? We want to provide a service that has value independent of the cool factor of it being a robot insofar as that we can really meet the needs of grocery stores and restaurants, And what that means is that we need to use autonomy when it's the right time to use autonomy and use teleoperations when that is going to be what allows us to do deliveries. And so we've been really, really focused on blending those two as seamlessly as possible to ensure that um, your pizza shows up and that your pizza um, maker and your pizza eater don't have to think about all of the years of work that have gone into AVs to make that possible.
0: So... Aside from the pickup and the drop-off points, for the in-between route, are you changing the route that the vehicle takes in order to maximize for autonomy or reduce the number of difficult situations?
1: We're really maximizing for for two things. One for safety and and then the second for time. And so, again, if left to my own devices and, and we didn't have these customers to serve, I think I would actually focus on doing the harder routes that are more interesting and more complex that teach the vehicle more about how to be more autonomous. But at the end of the day, again, if I can focus on the easy routes, the ones that we can do with more autonomy, but also the ones that we can do, and that tends to correlate almost 100% with the ones we can do more safely. That's the ones; those are the ones that I want to focus on. And so we really. Again, safety is sort of paramount to what we're trying to do, obviously. And so when I think about scaling, what I think about is how do we pick and figure out what are going to be really safe routes that will be reliable and repeatable and enable us to do the fulfillment that we need to do. And so if that means taking you know, four right turns to avoid a left, if that means avoiding the four-way stop, if that means taking a more circuitous route, that is the thing we're going to do. Because at the end of the day, your food doesn't care if you have to go a few more blocks but ultimately, everybody cares that you get there safely.
0: Have you made some changes to your delivery process in light of the global pandemic? Are you trying to be more contactless, doing any special cleaning? How has your process changed?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. One is that we have been doing no batching. So that means we do point to point right now and bring the vehicle back to the depot in between every run and then wipe it down. And so we think that that's an important piece here of cleaning any surfaces that might have residual viruses on them. And then the second bit is in thinking about the user experience of how you get the food out, we're trialing right now and are going to roll out mainstream the ability to open the vehicle with just your phone so you don't actually have to touch even the keypad that's on the vehicle right now. And we think those two changes are going to help quite a bit. And then the second, or I guess the third prong of this is that we've installed UV lights in a few of the vehicles and are really trying to understand exactly how helpful they can be in um, not only disinfecting the vehicle in between runs inside, but also disinfecting any packaging that the food may be in as it's traveling to you. So we think all those things in combination are going to be hopefully really powerful in, in, in helping to decrease risk and increase you know consumer confidence in that they're going to be receiving something safe
0: now you just need an extra device in there that keeps the French fries warm.
1: You know, uh, one of the things Ron pitched me, one of the first things Ron pitched me uh, when we were kicking around ideas was, was a mobile French fry fryer. <laughs> so a giant vat of hot oil that would fry fries right as they pulled up to your door. I um, and, and I thought, crazy idea, but I think that maybe at some point in the future, that'll be the answer because apparently McDonald's has looked at it in a bunch of different ways, and there's just, there's no science that they figured out yet to do anything to keep the fries good beyond 15 minutes, and so the only answer then is a technology solution where you fry them the, on the route, but I think that that is probably maybe Rev 17 or 18, <laughs> not, not Rev 10.
0: Right, yeah, I think there was a company in Palo Alto that was doing uh, mobile pizza where they were cooking it, in the pizza oven on the way to you uh, for that reason.
1: Hats off to them because I can tell you what we're doing now is a really hard problem. So I couldn't even imagine trying to do that and then cook something while we're on the way. But again, maybe Maybe in the future we'll get there. That's right.
0: So you told us a little bit about the vehicle and how it has three wheels. Can you tell us about how it's classified in most states? Is it an electric bike? And if so, does it have pedals?
1: Yeah, so one of the things we've done is aim to really meet all the requirements for an e-bike in most jurisdictions. And so it has some pedals that are hidden under the shell. And it's sort of one of those quirks of how we think about trying to meet existing regulations with vehicles that were really never designed to meet those regulations. So what I am hopeful about is that we're actually moving into a new era now where we're starting to see legislation on the books that will directly address sort of delivery robots as a class. And so we're working here at the state level to get legislation passed that would reclassify us into our own class of vehicle. Obviously, legislation takes longer than fitting into the existing regs. And so what we've been doing is is building vehicles that meet those requirements. So under 26 miles an hour, under a 500-watt motor, and all the other requirements for a class two e-bike. But in fact, one of the nice things is that Michigan has very robust autonomous vehicle legislation. So essentially, what that did is that that law that was passed statewide sort of opened up the door to a whole host of autonomous vehicles, really of a bunch of different stripes. And so we've been able to both fit under that legislation and then from a vehicle code legislation try to meet all the relevant vehicle code legislations for both e-bikes but then also for mopeds and a couple of other things. By trying to by trying to hit all of those, what we're really aiming to do is to make it really easy for regulators When they want to pass a law that says, well, this is what this class of vehicle is going to be regulated under moving forward, to to do that in a way that it fits into a nice, tidy framework. But we're really hopeful that this legislation is going to pass. So there's legislation that's being introduced right now on the floor in the House in Michigan, and that would reclassify not just us, but also sidewalk delivery robots and a whole host of other vehicles into a new class of personal delivery devices that hopefully means that there's a permanent and very clear path forward for a bunch of types of robots which is obviously exciting to me as a as a robot lover.
0: <laughs> Some folks in the micromobility community have pushed back on the idea of electric pod larger size vehicles riding in the bike lane. How do you think about that problem? in terms of conflict on the roadways, and how does your product compare to other, say, cargo bikes or or other products that you typically see in the bike lane?
1: That's a great question. So it's one of the things that we've been thinking about. Um, I guess the first thing we'll say is, tragically, there aren't really enough bike lanes to make a bike lane-exclusive robot a viable option really anywhere in the US right now, and so we spend probably about 15 to 20% of our time in bike lanes and the rest of the time on the road. And if you talk to anybody that cycles here in Ann Arbor or really any major city, they'll tell you that bike lanes are getting better, but they're still really not where they would need to be in terms of connectivity and and sort of um, density of deployment to make it viable, to be able to kind of move through an entire city just on bike lanes. But obviously we're really sensitive to this idea around being able to share that, to be good citizens, not just of the bike lane, but also of the road. And so I think the big challenges there the way that we think about them are, are a few fold. One is typically speed differential. So if you talk to bikes, one of the biggest risks that bikes face is when there 's a massive speed differential, obviously that 's one of the highest um, one of the highest opportunities for fatalities and so you don 't want to be riding your bike on the highway because cars on the highway are going fifty miles an hour or sixty miles an hour, and you 're going twenty and that 's unsafe. And so in that same way, we think about roads and, you know, places where you don't want to be riding your bike because cars are going too fast is a place we probably don't want to be. And so obviously not the highways or obviously highways are not one place that we one place that we don't go, but also really high speed roads, sort of these big multi lane roads where it really would feel pretty unsafe to cycle. Now, when it comes to thinking about sharing the bike lane, I think that's a more interesting and kind of longer term question. I think cyclists are really sensitive to, and rightfully so, the thought that other people are going to be using these lanes aside from them. But the way I've always thought about framing that is sort of the following. I think it's critically important to think about a holistic solution to urban mobility. And bike lanes are one piece of that, but also... It's thinking about how do we get more pedestrian protection? How do we decrease the number of pedestrian fatalities, cycling fatalities? How do we do all these things in in concert? And, And we hope that we're one small part of a larger arc that cities are undertaking right now to move towards zero pedestrian fatalities. And so my hope is that our ability to credibly do delivery will hopefully lead to less ride-hailing vehicles or your Uber Eats or your whatever DoorDash vehicles, taking up space on the road, but more importantly, putting more cars out there on the road that are not only burning fossil fuels and moving around with 4,000 pounds of car for 10 pounds of food, but also stopping quite a lot and stopping quite a lot in the margin of the road, which means that they're sort of in direct conflict with Bicycles, in the sense that if you're a Doordash car and you double park in the bike lane to go do your delivery, a cyclist then has to go around you to make that um, safe. And so, I guess the way that I've been thinking about it is that we're hoping to be as cyclist friendly as we possibly can be. And so, one idea there, right, is not double parking in bike lanes, not double parking in the margin of the road, being smaller and narrower, figuring out ways of getting ourselves out of the way. And that can include pulling up onto the sidewalk and waiting there. Uh, again, out of the way of pedestrians, hopefully, as well. But thinking about ways of tucking a, a narrower or smaller vehicle out of the way so that cyclists can get by and that you're not taking up that kind of space.
0: And, and what is the total weight of... I, I know people think about safety in the bike lane in terms of the weight of the vehicle and the speed at which it's traveling. And so I was yep. trying to compare in my own mind an adult male riding an electric bike versus your delivery pod that doesn't have a human on it, how would you compare those, those weights and those speeds?
1: Yeah, so the easiest way of thinking about it is we're about the weight uh, of an 11-year-old on a bike. So we're in the 100 to 120-pound range, again, depending on load and configuration. And so what that means is that ultimately we think that that mass and then the speed we're going Really changes the risk profile. And it's one of the big reasons we think that autonomy at that sc- size and speed is viable. But we're probably, well, it depends on what person's riding the bike, but we're probably, uh, from an average uh, American male, probably 40 to 50 pounds lighter. And so typically, what we hope is that that means that we pose less of a risk than even, let's say, a cargo bike or something along those lines. Um, Look, I think it's an honest concern to worry about how these things are going to be shared. So we think a lot about how do we let cyclists pass? How do we move in the lane in a way that is safe? How do we not obstruct bike traffic? All those kind of things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I think the right thing to do is to segregate these vehicles based on weight and speed and putting a bunch of things together that weigh about 100 to 200 pounds and travel, let's say, 10 to 20, 25 miles an hour is probably the max if you're a human. I think that makes sense, and at the end of the day, if if you can do that, I think a lot of the questions about what goes where start to get answered, because if you protect things that move at that speed and at that weight, you're ultimately, I think, going to benefit people a lot, because usually the highest risk of fatality is not vehicle-to-vehicle collision, but vehicle-to-cyclist, full-size car-to-cyclist, truck-to-cyclist. Or truck to pedestrian, car to pedestrian, right? Or wheelchair or whatever.
0: Have you had any accidents in your operations in uh, Ann Arbor?
1: Luckily, no. So fingers crossed moving forward. Uh, I'm sure someday that's going to change, right? It's just a matter of odds until we do have an accident. But we've been really lucky to date. And so we've scraped up the vehicle. We've, you know, done some stuff to it, but no collisions. And so that's really lucky. One of the big drivers that we think here is that I can kind of rest, to some degree, a little bit easier thinking about what type of risk we pose at the weight and speed we're going, that really there's still, you, you never want to hit anything, but knowing that once you get to some kind of sense of scale, accidents are going to happen, even if they're not your fault. I think that at the weight and speed we're going, that the chance of the fatality is very, very low, which, again, is one of the reasons why I feel comfortable trying to deploy this thing and knowing that nobody comes to work in the morning hoping to get an accident. But definitely no one you know, wants to dedicate their life to building something that, that could kill somebody. So um, that's the way that we think about it.
0: So you're currently focused on restaurant food delivery and grocery are there other target use cases that you have in mind given kind of the distance speed cargo space and what does the next year or so look like for refraction are you looking to expand to more cities or types of delivery
1: yeah it's a great question so we are trying to do two things i guess one is as we have moved to this simpler model where it's really just you call the robot and you tell it where to go That's unlocked a lot of additional options that I don't think we had thought about before. Everything from flower shops to dry cleaning. And one of the things that we realize is that that flexibility that having sort of just a delivery service will enable will, I think, allow us to do things that have been to some degree difficult for other entities to be more flexible around which is that if a flower shop wants to do it and they only really have a couple of deliveries a day or it's nowhere near the volume of food that really starts to become fine as we get to some sense of scale because we're not going to be bringing in the customer demand on the consumer facing side you know it's hard for doordash i think to expand into too many other areas because they're bringing in that customer demand so if they move to flowers okay now i gotta start thinking about how to get a flower ordering website how do i think about that Okay, what does that mean? What are the dynamics around flowers? All those kind of questions. And so focusing on the delivery layer, what we're hoping is that that will enable others that really have been kind of locked out of this on-demand delivery space. Now, there's some options. There's Amazon Flex. DoorDash does have a straight drop-off option. There's Postmates. But really, none of those have hit the level of scale that I think they would need to be at to, to be really viable options for lots of other small businesses.
0: So you could do sort of one-off types of delivery because you're not building out the whole website. You don't need 50 flower shops. You can do a one-off, a flower shop or deliveries for uh, a small set of stores on a main street without having to have a lot of the same type of store or industry uh, on your platform.
1: Exactly. And I think for us, the more demand we have and the more density we have and also the more temporally spread out it is, those are all wins, right? So obviously food and grocery, particularly prepared food, have very tight time bounds on when people order stuff, right? They tend not to order in the morning. They do a little bit of lunch, mostly at dinner, not too much super late at night. But lots of other things have huge time windows that really vary. And so we got into grocery to smooth out the demand of prepared food. And that's been a huge eye opener since COVID, where we realized, oh, great, you know, not only is there a ton of growing demand in grocery, but also grocery doesn't need to happen at lunch and dinner, right? It can happen in the morning, it can happen in the afternoon, it can happen in between. And we think there are probably similar wins to happen with other small businesses and other kind of types of stores that really hadn't been thinking about this. A- and for us, what we really, really want to get is thinking about in some way the way that e-commerce platforms, but really payment platforms, have been able to make this work. So if you think about things like Stripe and Square, you know they've been really enabling for your local flower shop to be able to offer some type of e-commerce platform and to be able to take mobile payments. And then, you know, what if we could do the same thing for actually fulfilling those orders, which means that Square, Stripe doesn't really care if you're selling flowers, you're selling coffee, you're selling whatever, they're able to make that work. And we're hoping that we're able to do the same thing for fulfillment. Now, that's a tall order. We're not there yet. Uh, I will be the first to admit, but it's, it's on a roadmap. And you asked about expansion, and I think where we see that going is, is really that we want to do two things. We want to get the density of robots up because I think that shows the viability of this. It it tests what is challenging around fulfillment and logistics to use robots for this. And it also tests some of the limitations around the fleet, what delivery zone can we really make viable? And then also, how does this interface with businesses that may have a a different set of requirements about whether they want to deliver to, how do we blend smoothly in with that? So that's one of the things. But then the second piece of this is we want to keep building robots and thinking about if we can move beyond Ann Arbor into some other markets and really test different geographies, um, different weather conditions, different road conditions, different environmental conditions, and different regulatory frameworks. Because honestly, the way that this, I think, has the biggest impact is that if we could at some point reach you know a much larger swath of the nation, and then at some point, hopefully, other countries as well. And so our dream uh, is pretty simple, which would be that You know, at some point in any city in the US, you could get your delivery fulfilled not just by a a human in a car, but maybe by a robot. And then beyond that, it's that there may be a long term ability for big chunks of our cities to automate large sections of moving not just things that need to be moved on demand, but also other parts of the supply chain that, that this, this crisis has really stressed, right? If you talk to anybody that delivers for Amazon or for UPS or for FedEx, they'll tell you how difficult the period this is, man, or the USPS. And so, you know, and thinking about ways of building something that is more robust so that we don't have the shortages and challenges we saw with this crisis that persist into the future.
0: And do you have any cities in mind for uh, next expansion?
1: We do. We have a couple on the list. So California would be great. And so we're looking at Palo Alto out there because they have had some other robots they've tried out. So we think that's a great starting place. We're also looking at Boston uh, and then Chicago and then also maybe Columbus. So we have yet to select anywhere. So these are sort of still in the let's plan it out. Let's see what we can do era. But we're already kind of sending people on the, well, we were sending people out to go look at things before all this. Now we're sending people on the internet to do some research <laughs> around exactly what it would mean to deploy any of these places. But we're, we're actively thinking about where the next stop is um, sort of after the summer.
0: Great. Well, we're all looking forward to uh, a robot coming to a city near us. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about refraction. Of course. I really appreciate you being here. It's been great. Take care. Thanks again to Matt for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new publication at smartercars.substack.com. And there you can also sign up for our email list for new podcast episodes and articles. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.